At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be concluding this morning uh, a series that we've been in the last several weeks from Matthew 21 through 23. This is actually one of three different series from Matthew 21 to 23 that we're going to be in over the next several months. But this particular series focused on the Father heart of God and how we see God's heart for his people come through inside of these chapters. And it began a couple of weeks ago when we looked at a parable of the tenants and we saw how God patiently and persistently pursues people. And then last week we continued this by looking at uh, another parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the wedding feast. And we saw that we need to respond to that pursuit of God to us in faith. And when we do so, we are clothed in the regalia of the Son of God, the regalia of the King of Kings, so that we might be with him forever. And so we have seen that over the last couple of weeks, and today we're going to continue this study and complete it by looking at Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, the last things that Jesus says publicly to the masses, addressing the national leadership of Israel before he goes to the cross. And so we're going to look at those verses together this morning in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to just ask a question and, and be honest. How many of you have ever showed up at a party that you were not invited to? How many of you have ever showed, there are a couple of cautious hands going up. Todd, you're, you're not cautious at all. You go right on up. I appreciate your uh, honesty this morning. Um, so maybe there, we have a bunch of firstborns here today who would say, I would never, ever, ever go to an event I was not invited to. Um, but it's also possible that there are some of you that didn't raise a hand because the person whose party you crashed is in the room and you didn't want them to know that maybe that was you. But anyway, I want you to think for a moment. If, let's just suppose that you were to try to go to a party that you were not invited to. And if that was the case, I think one of two outcomes would probably happen. Uh, the first outcome, we'll call this the best case scenario, is that you are never found out and you enjoy the party. But the entire time you're there, you're hoping, hoping, hoping they don't figure out who you really are. That's the best case scenario. Or let's imagine the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is is that they find out that you don't belong. You get identified and called out and embarrassed and humiliated and have to leave in shame. That would be the worst case scenario. But either way, there's a certain amount of anxiety in attending a party that you are not invited to. Can we agree on that? Now, here's the thing. Contrast that with your, your feeling of going to a party that you were invited to. An invitation came with your name on it. You responded to the RSVP. You got a phone call reminding you, hey, can't wait to see you. Not a generic email, a personal call. Not a text message, a phone call where they called you by name. And when they see you walking up the drive to the party, the host comes running out to meet you and calls you by name and gives you a hug and invites you to come on inside. 
and sits you down at a seat at the table where you have a name card already prepared. Now, what would it feel like to go to that party? Feel a little different, right? Let me ask you the question, friends. As it relates to our relationship with God and our presence in eternity at the party of the Savior that is going to go on forever and ever and ever, do you feel like you are crashing the party? Do you feel like you've snuck in? Do you feel like, I sure hope that God never figures out these things about me, or at least maybe God will know it, but maybe nobody else will, or maybe God will just look the other way or be busy doing other things, and I'll be able to enjoy the party for a little while. Or do you realize that your invitation into eternity is not something like that? Your invitation to the party is a personal one, where the God who created you looks at you and calls you by name, and says, come to me. I want you to be present with me forever. Friends, that's the reality that we're going to see this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Again, the last public words that Jesus will say to the nation of Israel as a whole before his death and his resurrection. What is he talking about? Well, friends, he's talking about in these verses the Father heart of God. And we're going to see it today as we look at these verses together. So if you got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to look at verses 37 through 39. I want to read these verses for us and then we'll back up and make some observations from these verses in three movements together. Jesus is talking and he's addressing a group of scribes and Pharisees and chief priests, the national leaders of Israel. He's talking to them and concluding a conversation with them and he says this, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, in these three verses, we see something of the Father heart of God. And I want us to see it in three parts. The first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to see God's gracious and his loving desire. God's gracious and his loving desire. Now, again, it's helpful for us to remember the context of these verses. Chapters 21 through 23 of Matthew detail the national rejection of Jesus as their Messiah by the nation of Israel. Jesus approaches the city at the beginning of chapter 21 riding on a donkey in a triumphal procession on Palm Sunday. But that celebration is quickly met with opposition as Jesus goes up to the temple area. And when he gets there, he sees some terrible things that are happening and he begins to offer correction and rebuke. And when that happens, the national leadership of Israel seizes the opportunity and they very publicly question Jesus' authority. And they say, we want nothing to do with you. What are you doing? By whose authority are you doing these things? 
And so Jesus begins a dialogue with them in these verses. And in that dialogue, he tells several parables that we saw the last couple of weeks where he begins to describe what is happening. Messiah is there, the son is present, and he is being rejected by the people he came to save. And after that rejection is made clear, Jesus talks about the judgment that is going to come upon the nation as a result. But, but after sharing those things, and at the conclusion of that conversation... Jesus offers these final thoughts in verses 37 through 39 that reveal God's gracious and his loving desire. Now, where do we see that? We see that, first of all, in how he addresses the nation. He, He addresses them here under the relationship of Jerusalem, where he uses the capital of the nation as a representation of the entire people. And he says to to the city of Jerusalem, he says to the national leadership of Israel, he says to the nation of Israel as a whole, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Friends, when a name is repeated like that in Scripture, it's a very emotional thing. It happens when parents are are grieving for their children. It happens when Masters are are calling and beckoning their followers to something greater. It happens when someone goes from death to life. It's an emotional, emotive thing. David says it, oh, Absalom, Absalom in the Old Testament. Jesus says it to Martha, oh, Martha, Martha. He says it as the resurrected Christ addressing Saul, who had become Paul, oh Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When, when this name is repeated twice, it's, it's emotive, it's emotional. It's a plea, an earnest plea, not given in general, but to someone specifically. Jesus addresses the nation and he, he mentions them twice. He says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh Israel, Israel. His heart, his passion, his desire for a relationship with them is quite clear. He mentions their name twice. What does he desire to do? In mentioning this passion to them, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what is, what is his desire? Is his desire to rebuke them? His desire to judge them? Is his desire to smite them in some way? Absolutely not. What is his desire? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together and your children As a bird gathers their young and protects them under my wings. Jesus had a desire to gather together the nation of Israel and to save them. He came not to smite them. He came not to judge them. He came to save them. That was his impassioned plea. I desire to protect you, to provide for you, to save you, Jesus says, to the nation of Israel. Now, this was quite clear, and it's reflective really of of the the arc of the story of Scripture where salvation message came to the Jewish people first, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There was a, a promise that that people would be blessed and that through them the blessing would go to all the nations. Uh, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that salvation came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. There was this idea that the gospel was going to go first to the Jewish people, but the intent was to go everywhere. And Jesus is just mourning in this moment. He says, I have come to you first, and I long to protect you. I long to save you. 
He's expressing his father heart. Now, I don't know if you have ever seen an animal caring for their young. But it's instinctive and it's beautiful, isn't it? Now, I'll tell you a, a quick story. We, we got to see this play out at our house uh, just over the last couple of weeks. Um, we had some, some friends move in um, uninvited, and, and they, they just moved in under our deck. We had a family of skunks move in, friends. We had a mama skunk. You might have called her Flower. Um, we named her Wishbone. Uh, and, but she had two little kids. And Wishbone and the kids moved in under our deck. And every night about 9.15, our little motion-activated camera would pop on, and we would just, you know, pop popcorn and line up for the show and watch what happened because we didn't know what to do with these folks, right? Uh, we didn't want to get sprayed by them, but we didn't want them around, but we didn't know what to do, so we just watched for a while. And it was fascinating to watch this mama skunk just care for her kids. They would begin to wander off. She'd go over and pick them up by the back of their neck and bring them right back close to her. She had a desire to protect. And we see that with skunks. By the way, they moved on in case you were curious. They're no longer living there, and we put gravel back in their home. But here's the thing. When you think about what we see in nature, we see this, this love and this care and this provision from a mother to her children. We see that with a family of skunks. We see that with a family of birds. And what Jesus says is, he says, my desire for you was to save and to protect you. Now, friends, let's think for just a moment about who it is that his desire was to save and to protect. Friends, it was the very people who rejected him. And it was the very people who not only rejected Jesus, but would persist in that rejection and would spend an eternity separated from God in hell. Jesus looks at the national leaders of Israel, people who were headed to hell in a separation from God because of the rejection of him. And he says, it is you that I long to gather together, that I long to save and to protect Friends, this picture helps us make sense of some of what we see in the New Testament in places like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul writes to his friend Timothy, and he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is God's desire? His desire is to gather together, to protect, and to save. We see it in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, what is God's desire? His desire is to save. His desire is to protect. And in his love and in his grace, he is offering us that kind of protection. Friends, some theological movements look at Scripture and they, they try to make sense of this reality that there are not every, not, that not everyone is saved, and they, they, they struggle with that. And in the process of struggling with that, they want to minimize God's desire for the salvation of all people, His love for them. 
Friends, when we see Matthew chapter 23, when we see 1 Timothy chapter 2, when we see 2 Peter chapter 3, it's a reminder of the desire and the love and the grace that God has for all people, even those rejecting him, even those who will ultimately reject him and spend an eternity away from him in hell. It is not God's desire to smite them. It is God's desire to save them and to protect them. And we see that heart come out clearly here. Friends, what does that mean? What that means is that you have been invited to the party. It means God's desire for you is to save you. Because when we see Jesus here, remember John 14, 9 tells us that if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. There is no separation in their heart. The heart of God the Father, the heart of God the Son, is inviting people into a relationship where he would save and protect them for all time. That means that you have been invited to the party. That means that if you have trusted Christ at some point in the past, you heard, oh, Steve, Steve, I want to protect and provide for you forever. Oh, Kimberly, Kimberly, you respond to God's desire to protect and to provide. And that means today, even if you've just wandered in here today because it's a dry place, The God who created you looks at you. He knows your name. He calls you by name twice. And he says, come to me. I desire to protect you as a mother hen does her chicks. I desire to provide for you. Friends, some of you, look out in the room. I know you have children who are not following Christ, and you, you are longing for them to be saved. Guess what? God who created them longs for them to be saved and says to them, come to me. you might be saved and find protection in the shadow of the wings of our Savior. The first thing, friends, that we see inside of this passage is God's gracious and His loving desire. But the second thing that we see inside of this passage is this. We see humanity's destructive response. God's desire is to save, but did humanity receive that well? Did humanity look at God's love and grace and desire to save and say, we welcome this, please save us? No. Humanity's reaction, personified by the nation of Israel, was not to receive that gift, but to reject it. We we see that described in, in what happens. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But then he says what happened in the history of this city. This city has killed the prophets and has stoned those who were sent to it. God had a desire that they would be saved, so he sent messengers, and yet those messengers were not received. They were rejected and mistreated and even killed. We saw that in the Old Testament over the last number of weeks as we think of the rejection of the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament times. We've seen it in the New Testament times in the rejection and the beheading of John the Baptist. We see it ultimately in the rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. God's desire is to save, but, but amazingly, God allows in his sovereignty our response. He calls for us to believe. He desires that we be saved, but what does it say? I desire that you would find refuge under my wings, but what? But you were not willing. Sadly, that's what happened to the nation of Israel. The leaders of the nation in the first century looked at Jesus and they said, no, thank you. 
They offered him up to the Romans. He took him to the cross. And that rejection of Jesus led to consequences. And Jesus outlined what those consequences were in the following verses. He, he, he says in verse 38, one of the consequences that, that comes is the house is left desolate. It says, because of your rejection of me, Jesus says, your house will be left desolate. Now, this is something we talked a little bit about last week, but it's really the picture of what happened in 70 A.D. Because of the Jewish national leadership's rejection of Jesus, judgment came four decades later when the Roman army came into Israel and flattened the city of Jerusalem. A million Jews, Josephus writes, died in the siege of that city the atrocities of Masada and other things that happened at that time. They, they, were, they were driven out of their nation, and they were oppressed in a significant way. All of that came as a part of the judgment of God because of the rejection of their Savior. Jesus makes that clear in verse 38. But not only would it come with the temporal consequences of, of the kicking out of the nation of the land, but, but also we see in verse 39 something else that happens, a consequence. They're going to get radio silence from God. Jesus says, for I tell you, you will not see me again. Interestingly enough, after Jesus' death and resurrection, you know my, how many appearances he made in his post-resurrection time to the leaders of the nation of Israel? None. He spent his time with his disciples. He spent his time with his followers. But he did not go back to Capitol Hill to hang out and make a plea to the national leaders of Israel. Part of the consequence was they were kicked out of the nation, but part of the consequence was they would get radio silence from God in the days ahead. See, rejection of God's gracious and loving provision leads to consequences. And that was true of the nation of Israel. And friends, that's also true for us today. Do you realize that there are both temporal and eternal consequences that come in connection to our sin as well? When we reject God's best, when we reject his provision, consequences surround us as well. Think about some of those temporal consequences, uh, both reward and uh, challenge that comes in our life when we disobey God. A number of passages in Scripture talk about this. Psalm chapter 1, the first three verses say this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers." The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Friends, sometimes we get hung up on verses like this because we, we expect there to be an immediate reward or an immediate judgment when we sin or when we obey. But I think this is talking more in the general principle category. When we live life according to the direction of the author of life, things go better than when we take matters in our own selfish hands. Proverbs chapter 3, the first few verses say something similar. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast 
love and faithfulness forsake you, but bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and of man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, this idea of of blessing. And then we see it even in the teaching of Jesus. When he concludes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about those who hear the word of God and do it, embrace it by faith and do it. They are like people whose lives are built upon a rock and the the rain comes down and the floods come, but they stand on that day. But those who hear the word of God, but ignore it or reject it, their house will come tumbling down. These are general principles that are shared to us, reminding us of the temporal consequences that come or the blessing that comes through obedience and following God. But also, friends, there are eternal consequences that come when we reject the Savior. This happens because Romans chapter 6 lets us know that the wages of sin is death. That means that all of us have a death sentence, a separation from God forever that is hanging over our heads because of our sin unless someone intervenes on our behalf. This judgment of sin and the eternal consequences of it are something that Jesus has already hinted at in the punchlines of all the parables we've looked at the last couple of weeks. In chapter 21 and verse 41, Jesus here talks about those being led out to a miserable death and being kicked out of the vineyard. In chapter 22, verse 13, he talks about the attendants binding the one who has rejected the clothing of the king, binding them hand and foot and casting them into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are eternal consequences that are tied to a rejection of God's loving and gracious provision. So friends, what we see and what we're reminded of inside of this is this reality that God desires that we be at the table. We've been invited to the party, but are we willing If we are not willing, then judgment will come. Just as it came for the nation of Israel in the first century, so judgment will come for us. In Jesus' desire and my desire for you, and I make this impassioned plea today, let us not be like those who look at the offer of what God is giving and reject it, but let us be one who is willing to find comfort under his wings. Well, that leads us to our third point. And this is how Jesus concludes this idea. He he concludes it with a hope-filled solution. In other words, he talks about his desire to save and to protect. He reminds them of the rejection that is happening. But at the end of his, his conversation, at the end of his talk, he lets them know how they might find themselves under the protection of his wings. Friends, do you realize that Those who find themselves saved in Christ today have not always been so. There was a time when they were on the outside of his wings, but now find themselves protected and covered by what Jesus did on the cross for us. So how does one go from an outsider to an insider? How does one go from someone who is to be judged to someone who will be saved? Well, Jesus gives us 
a hint of this as he concludes verse 39. He says, I tell you, you will not see me again until, it's a great little word, until, until what? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is the path back? What is the path to protection? The path to protection is to look upon Jesus and say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. To look upon Jesus and say, you are the one who can save me. You are the one who died for me. You are the one and the only one in the only way that I could spend an eternity with God is through you. Jesus makes that clear. Now, when Jesus says this, friends, I, I think in part he is talking about a historical prophetic fulfillment that will happen in connection to this verse. See, remember, he's talking here to the national leaders of Israel, and he's letting them know, you are rejecting me now, but one, you know, and that will lead to some consequences. But Jesus concludes this with this hopeful situation where he says, but there will be a time, there will be a time when you as a nation will look to me and recognize me as the Messiah and receive me and trust me and be saved. Friends, Jesus was, was talking here about events that are described in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14 when Jesus will come again. And when Jesus comes again, you know where he lands on the earth? Not just any place and not in Oklahoma. You know where he's going to land first? He says he's going to land on the Mount of Olives right outside the city of Jerusalem. And when he lands on the Mount of Olives, Israel is going to be under siege, and the nation is going to look to Jesus in that moment, and they're going to say, there he is. There's our Messiah. Blessed are you who is coming in the name of the Lord to save us. In that generation of Jewish people, that generation of Israel at that time will be who Paul describes in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26. When he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved, it doesn't mean everybody who is ethnically Israel, and it doesn't mean everybody who's ethnically Israel for all time. What he's saying is there will be a remnant on the earth at the return of Christ who will see him come back, who will look to him, and who will say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, if that's part of what he was saying for all time and for the future, Friends, I also think in the midst of this, he was showing the path and the way for everybody in the meantime. You see, though Israel as a nation had rejected him, and that would lead to these consequences, the individuals inside of that nation and the individuals that live in every nation on the earth, regardless of our ethnicity, have an opportunity when we hear this message to look to Jesus and say, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. Stanley Toussaint says this of Israel at this time. He says, It is extremely important for one to note that Christ's rejection of Israel is not an eternal one. The word until of verse 39, together with the following statement, affirms the fact that Christ will come again to a repentant nation to establish the promised millennial kingdom. That's the future one-day fulfillment. But friends, right now, this morning, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity right now to hear these words of God's love and His grace and His promise and His provision 
to be reminded that this offer could be accepted or rejected. The question comes to you this morning to say, are you willing to find protection under his wings? Are you willing this morning to look to Jesus and say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord because you are bringing salvation, not just in general to humanity, but you're bringing it to my house, to my name, to my life. Friends, are you willing today? I want you just to imagine for a moment God saying your name twice. Offering you the protection of his wings. The protection of the forgiveness that is only found in Christ. Are you willing? Take shelter underneath. It's my prayer that you are. There's an opportunity for us to respond even right now. Father God, we are so thankful for your, your heart. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to reveal to us your heart and the emotion and the passion and the commitment that you have to bring us into a relationship with you. Thank you that you pursued us in this way. Thank you that you have provided a way. Thank you that you have made an impassioned appeal to us to be connected to you. Father, I pray that everyone hearing my voice today that they would be trusting in Jesus and finding protection under his wings. That is our only hope for eternity. And you have provided for it amply, and you have invited each of us to the party, that we would all find our shelter there. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.